Open the Word of God with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Thank you, brothers Newell and Matthew, for leading our singing and for bringing us the second psalm. A glorious psalm indeed, quoted several times in the New Testament, setting up our Lord Jesus Christ at the right hand of the majesty on high, reigning over the kings of this earth and all the nations and the heathen with his rod of iron and God his Father laughing at their conspiratorial efforts to keep him from that throne. What a glorious God we worship this morning. This is not a time to be foolishly afraid. It is a time for us to rejoice and tremble together as the scriptures told us in that psalm. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We have already made this morning several comparisons to this pulpit and to other pulpits. It should be understood, especially by anyone here, but but also those that would hear this by some other means, that it is not by any natural ability or personal difference that this pulpit is different from any other pulpit. Any difference between this pulpit and other pulpits that is for the good and for the glory of God is by His grace and mercy and power alone. However, the pulpits of this country, for the most part, and when I say the most part, I mean above 99%, do not preach the truth of the Bible. They do not preach the God of the Bible. They don't even know Him. They're not even close to knowing Him. They are ridiculous. As I spoke to a young man this morning before we began, 95% of those who call themselves Christians while using the Bible cannot even figure out the mode of baptism, let alone the nature of God. They don't want to know the terrible God of the Bible. They want a loving and good God who values them because they're humans. There is no value in being a human. If there was value in being a human, the most valuable being in the universe short of God is the devil. The glory of the devil far exceeds the glory of any man. Yet God is terrible. They don't want to know that God. They have corrupted the God of the Bible. They do not know Him. They have made idols and images in their hearts to their own liking. That is the difference. What makes the difference is the Word of God. We open the pages of the Word of God and we declare what is there. We don't pick and choose our little sound bites like God is love from the first epistle of John and think that that's the end-all statement about God. As I now will show you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Beginning in the last two verses of the fourth chapter, And running through the eighth verse of this chapter, the Apostle Paul describes his great confidence in the resurrection of the dead and meeting the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in verse 6, Therefore we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. To be in your physical body means you are absent from the Lord's presence in heaven. To be absent from that body means you're present with the Lord in His presence in heaven. And we walk by faith, not by sight. 
We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. This is the general context. Wherefore, verse 9, Wherefore, because you will be taken out of your body, and because you will be in the presence of the Lord, wherefore we labor that whether present in this body, in this world, or absent out of this body with the Lord in His presence, we may be accepted of Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ sooner or later. We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ that every one may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. These three verses, verses 9 through 11, are glorious verses, They're seldom preached in their entirety, and they're seldom seldom applied like they should be. The verse 9 should comfort you. The apostle knew that he could labor, and he did labor, and we should be laboring with him, that whether we're here or whether we're there, we're at all times accepted of the Lord by our labors. Now, we are talking about our practical relationship with him. The only way that we can truly be accepted with God is to be accepted in His Beloved, as Ephesians 1, 6 tells us, and that is the legal, that is the eternal, that is the final clothe, clothing and robe of righteousness that we wear in the sight of God. But there is a practical obedience that we want to give the Lord of glory. And this the Apostle is talking about here when he says we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of Him. Notice in the Bible, there is no accepting of God. They have made up something that is incredible. It is one of their mantras that we need to accept God, that we need to accept Jesus. No, that is not taught in the Bible. Go home and do a word search of accept or accepted. It's God accepting us in Christ. It's God accepting us by our labors. And we can be acceptable to God by our labors because they're sanctified by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're enabled by the power of the Holy Ghost. So we can be accepted of Him. And that should be your goal. And if you consider the terror of the Lord, it should be a serious goal for your life. Verse 10 tells us why we should want to be accepted of Him, present or absent, because we're going to appear before His judgment seat. Jesus Christ will sit on a judgment seat. He will not sit on the bow of a ship, and you'll wade out through the shallow water of the edge of the Sea of Galilee, and He'll pat you on your head and tell you you're a good boy. He will sit on His judgment seat, and it will be stupendously glorious. And the heaven and the earth will flee away from the face of Him that sits on that throne. He is nothing like the pictures and the caricatures and the descriptions that so many religious teachers have given us. 
Don't you have any of that so-called Christian art in your home or anywhere near you? It is a blasph- it is blasphemous and it is an abomination to God. We are not to have any graven images of God or His Son Jesus Christ because no one knows what He looked like and none of them have ever represented Him like He looks like in Scripture as described in this 10th verse. He will sit as judge. He will not be a baby in a manger. He will not be John Lennon hanging on a cross. And he will not be Charles Manson look-alike knocking on a door in a garden. He will be sitting on a throne of judgment. And you will appear before him. We must all. You must be there. It is appointed to when men wants to die. But after this, the judgment. And when you die, you are absent from your body. And you are in the Lord's presence. And then we will all stand before him. And it will be a judgment seat of Christ. Why? That everyone, that's you, that's Paul, that's me. It's terrible that there are some Baptists called primitive who are so fatalistic in their doctrine think that God's elect will not stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Isn't it something that they are so haughty in their fatalism that they think themselves better than the Apostle Paul? The Apostle Paul knew that he would stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Therefore, he, along with his ministerial fellows, labored that they might be accepted of him. There will be a judgment of discovery of God's elect. But there will not be an execution of the sentence against them because the execution of the sentence will be found fully satisfied by the Lord Jesus Christ by our names being in the book of life. But there will be a full discovery. The reprobates will have their sins discovered and the execution of their punishment will be charged against them because the Lord Jesus Christ will not stand between them and God as their mediator. That is the difference. But we shall receive by discovery the things done in our body. An account will be made. This is taught to us throughout the Bible. This is taught to us in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and the last verse, 14. It's taught to us in Romans 14, 10 through 12, in nearly identical words to these right here. And this is taught in a passage I'm shortly to turn you to. Verse 11, knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord. Knowing, therefore, because of verse 10, that we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, there is something terrifying that we should consider. And that is standing before Jesus Christ as glorified judge and giving an account of our lives. This day will our words be acceptable in His sight. This day are your thoughts acceptable in His sight. This day are the things you have done and will do acceptable in His sight. Let us labor to be acceptable in His sight, whether present or absent. Right now we're present in our bodies, absent from the Lord, so let us not lose today. You might be able to avoid a full sentence of a traffic cop by meeting him outside a court and telling him you were a bad boy. It will not help in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. You may have been able to snow a teacher by having a cold and you just didn't understand the instructions. And so she raises your grade from a C to a B. There will be no raising of grades in the eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ. He will judge holy judgment. And God will judge holy judgment. 
And I'm thankful that his judgment will be entirely holy and righteous because that means I am saved. It doesn't mean I'm lost. It means I am saved because he's not going to overlook what Jesus Christ did for me. It will be ugly and it will stink in heaven when he makes discovery of Jonathan Crosby. But I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord. But knowing, therefore, I started out this morning a little while ago with Psalm 46 and verse 10, Be still and know that I am God. Well, this is one of the things that you should know about the God of the Bible. We will all stand before Him. And He doesn't care who you are. He doesn't show any respect of persons. He doesn't care for free or bond, great or small, rich or poor, Greek or barbarian. There will be no differences in His sight. He is impartial as a judge. And we should know this, knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord. The Apostle Paul knew about this coming judgment described in verse 10 because God revealed it to him. The Apostle Paul knew about it because it's recorded in the pages of Scripture. You can turn to Matthew and read about Jesus lying in a manger, swaddled if you wish. But if you're going to turn there and read about Him lying in a manger for the few months that He was in swaddling clothes, you make sure you read Matthew 25 when He gathers all nations before Him and puts the goats on His left hand and the sheep on His right hand. And He takes and He separates them and He puts them on His respective hands and He turns and curses those on His left hand into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And He invites those on His right hand into eternal pleasures with Him forever. Those on His left hand will say, It's not fair! We should be going to heaven. And He'll say, I never knew you. Those on His right hand will say, It's not fair! We haven't done anything worthy of going to heaven. And He'll say, In that ye did it to the least of one of these my brethren, you did it to me. He will elevate the smallest things that we have ever done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to the greatest things necessary as the evidence of our eternal life. Is that precious? Amen. You make sure you're on this side saying, Lord, I'm unworthy. He'll make you worthy. And you labor to be accepted of Him. But knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord... You know, if I was to listen to pulpits only and then try to interpret Scripture, I would say that this must be a translational error. This has to be knowing, therefore, the love of the Lord, we persuade men. It has to be. No evangelist in his right mind would ever try to persuade men by the terror of the Lord. They all try to persuade men by the the love of God. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. What is so persuasive about that? Knowing therefore the goodness of the Lord, we persuade men. No. Knowing therefore the mercy of the Lord, we... No. No. Knowing therefore that, no, no, no. It's knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. It makes me sick what they have done to the God of the Bible. He is no longer the God of the Bible. 
No wonder Paul would tell the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians, this epistle, chapter 11, if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, ye might well bear with him. You Corinthians are so pitiful in your understanding of the doctrine of Jesus Christ that if a man comes along preaching another Jesus, you'll probably believe it. If he comes another with another gospel, you'll accept it. If he comes with another spirit, you'll receive it. And Paul said, I'm jealous over you with godly jealousy. And you know what they would say to us? Jealousy isn't even a good word. God isn't jealous. Oh, yes, he is. His name is Jealous with a capital J. And so I'm jealous over you and I'm jealous over me. Lest anything would distract us from understanding, verse 11, knowing. Do you know it? The apostle knew it. He knew it by direct revelation from heaven, and he knew it by the revelation of scriptures already given, that God is terrible, and the white throne judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ is something to dread. Until you lay hold of Christ by faith. Because the apostle Paul wasn't afraid of it. Because that's why he labored. And he had been persuaded. And if you've been persuaded, then that means you've laid hold of Christ. And if you've laid hold of Christ, then there is no reason to fear. Right. You may boldly enter in to the holiest of all by a new and living way, which he has made by his son Jesus Christ, who sits at his right hand and has sworn, I will not lose one of them. Oh, even me. He should lose me. But he won't lose even me. And he won't lose even you. If you have run to Jesus Christ, and if you are laboring to be accepted of him by showing by your good works that you're Christ. The terror. What is terror? Intense and debilitating fear. It is something terrifying. It's a Bible word. It's God's choice of words. It is what's coming. You're afraid of an exam in school? Hello? How much estrogen do you have pumping through you? Forgive me, ladies. That wasn't fair to you. Because we have some Miriams in jail sitting in this assembly that I would not want to be Sisera in their tent. We get fearful of some of the smallest things, but there is something we should be afraid of. There is terror. And it's not thunder. And it's not lightning. It's the judgment seat of Christ. So that we will labor. That we might be accepted of Him. That we can go boldly into the presence of Christ. Paul couldn't wait to get there. He said, it's far better for me to depart. Now what in the world happened to him from this passage? Nothing changed at all. Which side of persuasion are you on? See, I'm coming this morning pretending that you and I are on the wrong side of persuasion. And I've got to get you to the other side of persuasion with just a few more minutes. Paul was already persuaded. I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He could say, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. So don't get me wrong, 
but I'm addressing you. What side of persuasion are you on this morning? We can tell, and God can tell, by your lives. How much do you labor to be accepted of Him? I don't care how hard you work. How hard are you working to be accepted of Christ? That's what the Apostle Paul meant. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Look at Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. What a shame. The world thinks that evangelism is taking out the four spiritual laws written by Bill Bright, the most widely distributed and most frequently printed tract ever written to declare the first spiritual law, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Yet in the book of Acts, which is the book of the Acts of the Apostles, 28 chapters long, there is not a single use of the 13 forms of the verb love in the entire book. When the Apostle Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, he didn't tell them about the love of God. He told them about Jesus Christ being seated on His throne at the right hand of God, making the earth His footstool. That's why they said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? When he stood with the Greek philosophers on Mars Hill, he did not reason with them of the love of God. He proved to them the judgment of Christ that was coming shortly upon them. When he had time to sit with Festus, he did not reason with him of the love and goodness of God. He reasoned with him of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come. Are you with me? That is the evangelism of the Bible. It's a shame that they have corrupted it so bad. They do not know the God of the Bible. They do not know evangelism of the Bible. And it's sickening to hear them on either subject. Revelation chapter 20, beginning at verse 11. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. No, Nothing could hide from the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This is the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what is referred to as the white throne judgment. This is Jesus Christ judging the quick and the dead. He has united all men before His throne. He has pulled them out of hell. He's pulled them out of the grave. He's pulled their bodies out of the sea. And they'll all stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and give an account of everything done, whether it be secret or not, whether it be good or evil. It doesn't matter how great they were in this world. 
God does not care anymore for Alexander the Great and the poorest peasant farmer in his empire. They'll all stand before him and give an account. And no, you won't be able to hide then. You, You may be able to hide from your parents in your bedroom. You may be able to hide from me in your thoughts. You may be able to hide from a teacher by snowing them. You may be able to hide, 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 but there'll be no hiding in that day. Not even the heaven and the earth can find a place to hide, and they will flee. But you will not flee because you will be held by the sovereign power of God at the judgment seat of Christ. But there's a book there that'll be open, and it's the book of life. And for that, we are most thankful. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And understand something about these Thessalonian saints and the gospel that was declared to them that they believed. I am preaching to you today to persuade you of the terror that's coming and that our God is terrible and yet we can be accepted of Him whether present or absent. Amen. And that is wonderful news. Right, but are you persuaded? Mental ascension to what mental agreement to what I preach is irrelevant and worthless. The devil's assent to everything I preach. The devils know that they will be tormented by the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember they confessed that He was the Holy One of God and they asked Him, Art thou come to torment us before the time? See, they know about the terror of the Lord. They were petrified of the Lord Jesus Christ. They fell at his feet and worshipped him. Your mental ascent is no more than a devil's faith, and it is likely not even equal to a devil's faith. What matters is, are you right now in your heart and mind, and will you, when this day expires, and through the process of this day, be still, and know that I am God? Will you be persuaded, so that you will labor, Ask a woman what the word labor means. So that you take some pains into your life to make some changes to be acceptable in the sight of Christ. Wherefore we labor. And I want you to labor. And I want to be laboring. Life is running out and the sand is running through Let's go down with a blaze of glory by burning ourselves out for Him. Here's what the Thessalonians believed. Their testimony was spread abroad through Macedonia and Achaia and in every other place where Paul went. They heard about this great church in Thessalonica. It's described in the second half of the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians. Verse 9, here's what other churches knew about the Thessalonians. For they themselves, these other churches, show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you. They tell us about your gospel conversion and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. God is terrible. God is angry with the wicked every day. God is full of wrath. The Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation 19 is treading the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And the blood is sprinkled all over His horse and His garments. And He calls the fowls of heaven 
to a great feast in that pictorial picture of his destruction of the wicked to fill themselves with the flesh of captains, to fill themselves with the flesh of kings. God doesn't care about kings on thrones. That's why you had Psalm 2 read to you today by his providential arrangement. Look at chapter 5 and verse 9. 5, 9, about this same church and about Paul with them. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. It is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. But there's a slight difference in our appointment. Our appointment is to die, then to have a judgment of discovery, and then to be exonerated by the Lord Jesus Christ, to be fully pardoned, to be absolved from our sins, and to be declared adopted son. Praise God. But I don't want to give you too much of that yet. That's the second assembly. I still have you on the wrong side of persuasion. And I'm wondering if you're able to be persuaded. Am I able to be persuaded? Your career progression is so exciting. A new house is so exciting. Having a baby one of these days is so exciting. College football is so exciting. NFL on Sundays is so exciting. There's so many exciting things. Can we take the time to waste by thinking about the judgment seat of Christ? We're both going to be there. You'll give an account for one. I'll give an account for two. Our God is terrible. The word terrible means he excites terror. He inspires great fear or dread. He's frightful. He's dreadful. These are words the Bible uses repeatedly. The great and dreadful God. The great and terrible God. The state of terror is being terrified or greatly frightened. It's intense fear. When men saw an angel, Manoah's wife, the mother of Samson, said, He was very terrible. They were petrified of an angel. And we're made just a little bit lower than the angels, but the angels aren't even close to God. If angels are terrible, what about the Lord himself? When Jacob and his family traveled through Canaan, God brought the terror of God upon them. The Canaanites did not touch him with his 11 boys under the age of 12. You say, how does that happen? Four wives, friend. Jacob had 11 boys under the age of 12. And God brought the terror of God upon all those inhabitants so they wouldn't touch that man with his little boys. Don't you ever be afraid of your enemies. God is able to do great and mighty things. He is king of the king of terrors. The book of Job tells us what the king of terrors is. It's death. And he is king of death. Our Lord Jesus Christ is so much the king of death, he can mock it and say, O death, where is thy sting? God wants to be known as terrible. Why do you think he raised up Pharaoh to be king of Egypt? That he might make his name and power known through that man's life. And how did he do it? By sending a sweet little dove down in his head? I'm not making fun of the Holy Ghost. I'm making fun of false doctrine. How did he get himself a name over Pharaoh? By putting frogs in his bed, flies in his bread, 
killing his firstborn and putting him in the muck at the bottom of the Red Sea. He sunk there like a stone, didn't he? Because you read it last night from Exodus 15. And the people of God, do they shake and shudder or do they jump up and dance and shake their tambourines? Because Miriam, a godly woman, after hearing Moses' inspired song, jumped up and repeated it back to him in a dance with the girls and women of Israel. Once in a while, having to step over those Egyptians that were fast enough to get their armor off before they suffocated under the waters, for their armor-free bodies had floated to the surface and were on the shore. He wants to be known. That's why he told Moses, I raised up Pharaoh. You say that's the Old Testament God. Then why did Paul quote that very verse in Romans chapter 9 and verse 17, even for this same purpose of I raised Pharaoh up? And then quotes the whole verse. The things he did in Egypt were to declare his terribleness to the whole world. And those things are recorded for us to remember them. His creation shows that he's terrible. Look at Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Verse 18 tells us, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Now this verse tells us that God's wrath is revealed. It's shown. It's exposed. It's made known. It's made manifest by the gospel. By Paul's preaching, God's wrath against men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Now what truth are, do wicked men hold? They know that there is a creator God by the creation. Because verse 20 tells us they are without excuse. How much are we going to be responsible for? Because we know so much more truth than they know. Don't you read these passages and just think of them. Let's read these passages and think of us. Are we holding the truth in unrighteousness? Do we know so much mental assent or agreement with truth, and yet we live an unrighteous life? Lord, have mercy. Have mercy. The truth that they had was the creation. And it says in verse 20 that they're without excuse because of the truth God revealed to them. And the things of creation reveal His eternal power and Godhead. That there is a being in heaven that has a Godhead. That is the collection of attributes that make God. That is the Godhead. And he has eternal power as one of those. And eternal power is the ability to judge in the afterlife. They know it. God wants it to be known. It's part of gospel preaching. The natural creation shows his power. Here it tells us that. Animals live in a world of violence. Have you seen the terribleness of animal violence? You know, now we have the means to have it videoed for us and shown to us. A world of deception. The animal world of fear, of suffering, of ignorance. Of bare survival. Because it's all laboring under the bondage of corruption. When you hear thunder, when you hear real thunder, when there is lightning and thunder that rips the air around you like a piece of canvas and shakes your internal organs... That's God just whispering of the terribleness of His power. When a tsunami comes and sweeps 225,000 off the coast of Indonesia and surrounding countries a few years ago, 
That's the terribleness of God. When a tornado comes and is measured as a four or a five on Fujita's scale and hits 260 miles per hour, and it's called the finger of God even by pagan scientists, it's the terribleness of God. In the Bible it's called His whirlwind, but the Lord has His way in the whirlwind. And the Lord sends His whirlwind sometimes and can reduce your track or custom built home to splinters. He can make matchsticks out of your house in a second. And He has not unleashed His eternal power yet. That was only a few small parts of His ways. And we do not know Him yet. Some will say, and this is the second time I've said it to you, and I've said it so many times, I fear wasting the space. They'll say that's the God of the Old Testament. I want to remind you that Jesus Christ that will sit on that throne of judgment is the same yesterday and today and forever. There is absolutely no change in the nature of God whatsoever to the least degree. The only change has taken place in the outward form of His religion. In fact, it is far worse now than it was under the Old Testament because God winked at their ignorance. Under the, You think He was tough in the Old Testament? He winked at their ignorance. But now He has sent His gospel into the whole world and He holds all men responsible to repent. Look at Hebrews chapter 10 with me. I want to prove to you from one of four choices in the book of Hebrews that it is worse now than easier. Hebrews 10 and verse 26. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sorer punishment suppose ye, think about it, shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, how's that for answering the issue or the question or the complaint? This isn't the God of the Old Testament. If you want to make that argument, I'll grant you your premise. This isn't the God of the Old Testament. He's much more severe under the New Testament because in the Old Testament, the only one you could rebel against was Moses, who was a sinner like yourself. In the New Testament, your rebellion is against the Lord Jesus Christ. This passage, in one sentence, applies directly to the generation of Jews between 30 A.D. and 70 A.D., and the certain fiery indignation that was coming was the fires of destruction to burn up the city of Jerusalem. 
and the, the sinning after having received the knowledge of the truth were converted, baptized, believing Jews going back to animal sacrifices by backsliding from Christ's religion to go back to Moses' religion. This is taught in chapter, it's taught throughout the whole epistle, but this degree of severity from God being greater in the New Testament is taught in chapters 2 and 6 and 10 and 12. Just like this, of how much sore punishment. Jesus said physical death wasn't bad. Remember, he that despised Moses' law died under two or three witnesses. Jesus told his apostles, fear not them which kill the body. And do you know what the, the fear of death is? The king of terrors. But Jesus said, Fear not them that kill the body, but after that have no more that they can do. Fear him, which hath power to kill both body and cast body and soul into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. And that's not the devil. The devil casts no one into hell. The devil deceives men to want to go to hell by living against the light of nature, the light of conscience, the light of Scripture, the light of providence, the terror of the Lord. The basis of God's terribleness is in His holiness. He's so holy that He hates sin, and He hates sinners. Look at Psalm 5. Of course, these are foreign verses to so many. Psalm 5. Verse 4. Psalm 5, 4. For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing, that is lying. The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. There's three verses for you. And those three verses are basically repeated in slightly different wording in Psalm 11 as well. It's based in God's holiness. The terribleness of God is shown toward the wicked in this world in different ways, but mostly in eternity. The terribleness of God toward His children is shown in chastening them in this world and none in the next because we're delivered by Christ Jesus. And we need to remember that distinction. I gave you this verse recently. Psalm 7 and verse 11. God judgeth the righteous. That means God fairly deals with the righteous. He chastens them. And God is angry with the wicked every day. When He sends His sunshine and His rain on the wicked, it appears that He's content with them. It appears that He may love them. But He's only showing them the benevolence of His nature And it's adding to their sins and guilt before Him. Because He's angry with them every day. He's always angry with sin and sinners. But His anger against us is a Father's anger and disappointment at at us frustrating Him. And He chastens us for it that He might perfect us that we will not be condemned with the world. If you want a cross-reference for Psalm 711, it's 1 Corinthians 11.32, where God judges us. It's even called damnation in 1 Corinthians 11. Whoso eateth and drinketh thereof unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, 
But that damnation is just practical, personal, earthly, temporal judgment. That we will not be condemned with the world. That that terribleness of eternity will not fall upon us, so He judges us in this world, sometimes even as severely as with death. Cuts us off early. Men today resent the terribleness of God. Preaching today, God is love. And they stop there. God is love. God loves everyone. God loves everybody in hell. God loves everyone. God loves you as you are. God can't love you as you are. God had to send His only begotten Son to shed His blood so that He could love you. Because you're so unlovable. The only thing that you elicit from God is hatred. In and of yourself. But in Christ, He loves us. We're made accepted in the Beloved. They talk about humane or inhumane behavior. I couldn't give a rip about what people think is humane. All that matters to me is what is divine. Humane is what humans think about something. I don't care about their opinions. What does God say? That's a divine behavior. That's divine conduct. And that is what should move us. Today it's no fear. Do you know what they ought to be wearing instead of shirts that say no fear? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. This is the whole duty of man. That's what Solomon had on his t-shirt. Why do they want to wear no fear today? Because the pulpits have taken away the fear of the Lord. There's no holiness. It's all casual. Come as you are. When we're supposed to be worshiping Him with reverence and godly fear. When God gave His law, it was terrible. The people couldn't handle God speaking to them. You need to read Exodus 19 and 20. That mountain was altogether shaking. And the sound of God's voice was like a trumpet. It was like a blast furnace. It was it was shaking and on fire. An entire mountain in the Middle East called Mount Sinai, and it's still there, was altogether shaking, looking like a blast furnace. And God's voice was like the sound of a trumpet and just kept getting louder and louder and louder. And the first intelligent words that came out of it were, Moses, tell those people that if they even come close to the mountain, they're to be killed. And if a beast or an animal or a dog or a puppy gets away and comes near that mountain, thrust it through with darts. Now, how's that for an invocation to our worship this morning? And they had spent three days not being allowed to have sex and taking baths and getting their clothes washed so that they could be acceptable in the sight of God. And it kept getting so worse that the people went to Moses and said, we don't want to hear him anymore. Get you up into the mountain and bring down the words to us. That's what it's like to meet God. That was just the giving of the law. Then when they read the law, they found out that rebellious and disobedient sons got stoned. If they cursed their parents, if they disobeyed their parents, if they were drunkards, if they smote their parents, if they set light by their parents, if they joked about their parents, if they were disrespectful to their parents, they died. They found out that it was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You poke someone else's eye out, your eye's going to get gouged out. If you're a woman and you try to help a, your husband who's in a fight and you touch the other man's private parts, your hand's going to be cut off. There should be no mercy. So you went around with a stump coming out of your sleeve. 
and they heard that law. When God ruined Egypt, it was terrible. I am covering so many verses right now just in brief because I want to end this. Are you going to be persuaded this sermon? What will it accomplish if I preach ten sermons on the terribleness of God and I could do so already? But what good will it do if you're not persuaded this morning to labor to be accepted of Him? Those first three verses I open with should be sufficient by themselves. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And whether present or absent, we labor that we might be accepted of Him. I want all of you to be accepted of Him present in your bodies and absent from your bodies when you're present with the Lord. And I want to be accepted with Him as well. I know that my ultimate acceptance is only in the Lord Jesus Christ and the same with you. But I know that the whole Bible is given to us that we might labor to be acceptable. Right. As that verse taught us, when God ruined Egypt, it was terrible. When God ruined Canaan, it was terrible. The Bible describes it in detail. God loved to terrorize the most fearful of nations. The Assyrians, the Assyrians were a brutal nation, but he took out 185,000 of them in one night and then killed their king when he kneeled to his God and asked why. And it just goes on from there. When a king thought he was great in Babylon, God put him in a field for seven years. Our God is terrible. But you know, there's mercy in his terror, isn't there? At the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven. And I wish I knew how to get every one of you to lift up your eyes to heaven. And it has nothing to do with your physical eyes. And it has nothing to do with your mental assent to what I preach. It has everything to do with your heart, whether you love the Lord your God or not. And how much this world deceives you and diverts you and distracts you from seeking spiritual things and thinking about eternity. Who knows that you are not going to stand before Christ this day? The final formal judgment will not occur today unless the Lord comes today. But how do we know that we're not going to be absent from the body and present with the Lord today? A couple of us have recently done that. Others are going to quickly go. Are we ready to meet him? Many, many, many more things could be said on the terribleness of God. You can read them on your own. Why is the terribleness of God important for us? And what effect should it have? Look at Psalm 4-4, and you should be at that page. Psalm 4-4. Stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be, be still. Selah. Stand in awe. The God that we worship, the God described in the Bible, is awesome. He's awesomely fearful. He's awesomely terrible. He's terrible to the kings of the earth. He's terrible to the rich and the poor. He's terrible to the animals. He's terrible because of sin. He's terrible to the devil and his angels. He has prepared an inferno of fire for them for eternity. We should stand in awe. And what effect should that have when we stand in awe of the holy God? And I promise you, you're going to stand there and you will be in awe soon. But let's do it now that we might be accepted of Him. Stand in awe and sin not. Let's make this sermon simple. Know the terror of the Lord and stop sinning. 
Are you sinning in your thoughts? Are you sinning in your speech? Are you sinning in your relationships? Are you sinning in your lack of Christian service? Are you sinning in your lack of spiritually mindedness? Are you sinning by your carnally mindedness? Are you sinning in your money? Are you sinning in your diligence? Are you sinning against our government? Commune with your own heart upon your bed when you have time to be quiet. And notice it's talking about bed. And, and, and the psalmist had no idea of the stuff that attacks us every day. But even then, David, who was a king, would have had people constantly asking him for his time. Commune with your own heart upon your bed when you have time to talk to yourself and say, Self, do I fear God like I should? Lord God, have mercy upon me and help me to fear thee more. Heavenly Father, forgive me for the weakness of my flesh and stir up me by the power of thy Holy Ghost that I will love thee and fear thee and stand in dread of thee as I should and rejoice in trembling like I should. Do you talk to the Lord? I know Paul did and I know David did. And I know the Bible teaches me too throughout. That's what we want from knowing the terror of the Lord. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I read that to you from Hebrews 10.31, and that was not about the Philistines, nor was it about the Muslims. It was about the people of God, because the previous sentence was, the Lord shall judge his people. That's first, and that's what we need most. Stop sinning. Sin is made fun of everywhere we turn. Adultery is having an affair. Sodomy is being gay. A rebellious, bratty little child is ADD. High strung. Dysfunctional marriages are, I have my rights too. Well, it just hasn't turned out the way I thought it would. Who gives a rip? The reason you couldn't think about marriage correctly is because you'd never been married and you wouldn't listen to us. All those thoughts. We want to stop sinning. We want to please God in every part of our lives. That's first. Second, it leads us to reverent worship. And I'm asking you, I'm asking this church to help me. It's the year 2012. No one believes in reverence anymore. There isn't reverence for any level of authority anywhere. Our military doesn't get reverence. Our president doesn't get reverence the way he should. Don't think about whether he's worthy of it or not as a person. The office doesn't get it. The media should never be able to sit and ask our president questions. He can tell them whatever he wants, as little or as nothing. He owes them nothing. I don't want to get off on that subject. There's no more reverence anywhere. Wives don't reverence husbands, and the Bible says they should. Children don't reverence parents, and the Bible says they should. You should fear your boss. There's no reverence of God. Casual worship, contemporary worship, Starbucks, tank tops, and flip-flops. How is that reverent? You say, well, reverence is a matter of the heart. Show me that from the Bible. Just show me from the Bible. I just need proof. Of course, it includes the heart. Why Why did Jacob have to wash his clothes and put a new set of clothes on? in order to be able to worship God at Bethel? Why did the Israelites have to avoid sex for three days and put on new clothes and bathe in order to worship God at Mount Sinai? 
Well, you know, once we get rid of how we appear, how we think, our music, you know, where do we end up? We can do anything we want. Every man shall do that which is right in his own eyes. Let's make choices in our lives personally. Let's make choices in our lives corporately where we give God the benefit of the doubt and we reverence him. We try to be still. We try to stand in awe. And we worship him like the New Testament says, with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. We remember that so that the way we sing, the choices that we sing, and the things that we do, the things that we wear, the the things we talk about, the way we act, the way we sit, the way we focus our attention is all done toward a God that is terrible. So that we are laboring when we worship here, so that we're laboring when we're away from here to be accepted of him. Once we get there, my brethren, remember that I taught you. He will remember that I taught you. I'm telling you now in advance. All these other churches are sitting there and they're never hearing a word about it. They're going to leap into eternity through the curtain of death and be totally shocked out of their minds. I want you to go confidently, like First John chapter 3 describes. It leads to proper worship. Help me in 2012. It's very hard. You go to the average church today, the women dress in cocktail dresses. It's, it's ridiculous. The music that they have, nobody brings their Bible. It's all casual. It's a joke. It's just like sitting around and having a cup of coffee with your idiotic neighbors. Where's the fear of the Lord? Where's the reverence? Where's the awe? I did that while I was away last week. I went to one of the largest Southern Baptist churches in this state that had been one of the largest, and now they were meeting in just a corner of their fellowship hall, but it was pitiful. That's second. It leads us to reverent worship when we know the terribleness of God. First of all, it keeps us from sinning. Second of all, it leads us to reverent worship. Third, third, it should give us great joy and cause a lot of praise. It makes me excited. I have heard, I know nothing about it, I have heard that there was a butchering done on the east side of Greenville recently by some savages entering into the home of an elderly couple and slashing them so many times with knives and spreading blood from room to room that some detectives from this city had never seen anything like it in their careers and could not deal with the case. Does anybody know about that? Just show me a few hands that I'm not speaking of something you don't know. I'm just going to use that as a short illustration. You know, when I read about something like that, do you know what kind of a sheriff I want in Greenville County? It starts with T. Hey, we're making progress. The third reason why we want to love and appreciate the terribleness of God is because anytime there's an enemy or sin like that, do you know what kind of a sheriff you want? A terrible sheriff that is going to leave no stone unturned until he finds them and then does whatever he can to them. That's a king against whom there is no rising up, described in the Bible. That's a great ruler that brings the wheel over the wicked. The wheel. The wheel. Do you know what the wheel was for? Grinding and crushing grain so that the chaff could blow away and the seed would remain. You know, that's a horrible concept of justice. No, I love it. That's what Proverbs teaches that a king ought to do. Bring the wheel over the wicked. That's why Jesus said, you fall on me, you'll be broken. But if I fall on you... I'll grind you to powder. So it brings praise. Look at Psalm 47. Love God for his terribleness. When I hear that thunder, yes, Lord, 
I know that's a token of your whispering power. And there's a day coming when your enemies and our enemies, those that make fun of the Bible. Another brother this morning told me that he was recently sitting in his English education class and hearing about how the King James was full of contradictions by a so-called Christian who goes to church. All those that believe in evolution and teach that there is no creator God. All those who want to abort babies. While they feel sorry for every little puppy. They're going to meet God. And they're going to meet a terrible God. And I'll rejoice. Psalm 47 verse 1. Oh, clap your hands, all ye people. Shout unto God with the voice of triumph. For the Lord Most High is terrible. There it is. He is a great king over all the earth. He shall, shall subdue the people under us and the nations under our feet. He shall choose our inheritance for us, the excellency of Jacob, whom he loved, Selah. See, God is terrible toward the enemies of those he loves. And that is just a, that is the most perfect combination. I want to be loved by the God the way the Bible describes that he would adopt us as his children, yet at the same time he's terrible toward our enemies. That's a great combination. And so the Bible tells us to shout with the shout of triumph and to rejoice and to sing praise about his terribleness. When we have a general sent into battle, what kind of a general do you want? A general that shows quarter? Or a general that obliterates the enemy? You say, well, I want one that abides by the Geneva Convention. Well, good for you. Vote Democrat. I want a general that gets the job done. And the Lord Jesus Christ is going to get the job done. He's going to turn all nations into hell that forget him. The fourth thing that we want is the faith that it gives us to trust him. That there is a reward for the righteous and the wicked. Look at Psalm 58. Psalm 58, verse 10. This whole psalm is about God's judgment. Look at verse 6. Break their teeth, O God, in their mouth. Verse 6 of Psalm 58. Verse 7. Let them melt away as waters which run continually. Verse 8. As a snail which melteth, let every one of them pass away, like the untimely birth of a woman, that they may not see the sun. This is God's inspired description of the enemies of the Lord being destroyed. Verse 10, The righteous shall rejoice when he seeth the vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked, so that a man shall say, Verily, that means truthfully, there is a reward for the righteous. Verily, he is a God that judgeth in the earth. So when we see the terribleness of God revealed in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and we see the terribleness of God in some natural acts, some political acts, we rejoice because of a truth. We see the fulfillment of the fact that there is a God that judges. He punishes evildoers. He rewards the righteous. That makes all the difference in the world. And so we're thankful, and it increases our faith. And much more could be said on every one of these points. Look at Deuteronomy 7.21. Deuteronomy 7 and verse 21. This is Moses, before he died, sending the Israelites into the land of Canaan to take the land of Canaan. Deuteronomy 7, 21. There are so many verses about the terribleness of God in the book of Deuteronomy. It's a wonderful book to read. Thou shalt not be affrighted at them. 
You know, we've talked about the fear of the Lord, but there should be no fear of our enemies. Fear not them which kill the body. Jesus said, fear him which hath power to cast both body and soul into hell. Deuteronomy 7.21, Moses said, Thou shalt not be affrighted at them, the nations of Canaan. For the Lord thy God is among you, a mighty God and terrible. And you can go on and read before or after that verse. We don't need to be afraid of anyone. As was already said by the young man that delivered to us Psalm 2, the political things that are happening in our nation, the political things to happen next month, no matter what president we get next month, who cares? Thou shalt not be afraid at them. The Lord thy God is among you, a mighty God and terrible. Oh, that's comforting. That should just build your faith up and fill you with faith. And last of all, why do we want to care about the terribleness of God? Why do we want to learn it? Because only then can we fully appreciate His grace and His mercy, which is our second assembly. May the Lord bless the preaching of His word. May you be still and know that He is God. May you, knowing the terror of the Lord, be persuaded to labor that we might be accepted of Him. Let's stand in awe and sin not.